Hey, Brian. Hey, Dan. Hey, listeners. Welcome to the 78th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. Brian, we're going to be doing something unusual, an experiment this time around. We're going to pair a top five list that we have each assembled with a movie selection that we're also going to talk through. And this is something that we've kind of floated around as a possibility for quite a while now. I think we're going to give it a try tonight. What do you think? Yeah, I'm happy to mix it up a little bit. Cool. Have a new structural element in our toolbox. Definitely. So what we're going to do here is we're going to talk through the movie. So that is Luca from 2021, the 24th Pixar movie. And then we're going to, as a thematic pairing, rank our top five Pixar movies. And we'll talk a little bit more about exactly how we'll do that. I think it'll go smoothly. But first, we're going to talk about Luca. So is this the first film we've covered from 2021? Uh, I have a list somewhere. Let me pull it up. I don't think we've cracked that year yet. I think 2020 is the newest so far. Yes, you're correct. We we have not covered any movies from 2021 or 2022, for that matter, but we have done four from 2020. So another thing you mentioned wanting to do is hit a few more recent movies. This is probably a year, year old, so it's not exactly buzzy, but it's still uh, something a little more recent, so... Right. It's pretty fresh. Yeah. And I, I suppose I could have done Talking Red, the other uh, Pixar movie. That's uh, Turning Red, I believe. What did I call it? Talking Red. Yeah. I, I assume that's the after show hosted by Chris Hardwick. <laughs> yeah, something like that. No, uh, Turning Red. So that's a, maybe we can elucidate briefly on that, too, as the, the state of the Pixar, because I think they have some things in common. Right, then they got to 25, so that seems like a milestone. We'd have a spectacular if we were Pixar. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, so as part of that, because uh, I've pitched the countdown feature a few times where we, we have our top five various things, and Dan in the past has said, well, what if we don't have a comprehensive knowledge of whatever it is? How would people be able to trust our top five are actually in contention as the top five? And so, listeners, we have both also watched any Pixar films, at least features, that we had not previously seen. So we each checked off a couple. Uh, I only had two to go. I, I actually had watched Luca before. I've watched it again for this episode coverage. Um, but I also watched Cars 3 and the new one, Turning Red. What else have you watched this week, Dan? Yeah, I had seen all but Cars 2 and 3 and Luca prior to this week. So I saw Turning Red the weekend it came out with my daughters on streaming, of course. And I hadn't seen Luca. I wanted to watch it with my daughters, but they watched the first scene with grandparents and got scared. And like when something scary happens in a kid's movie, it almost always ends within a minute or two. There's a couple of exceptions to that, but like if, if it were me with the girls and they had gotten scared and said, turn it off, I would have said, oh, 
don't worry, we're going to meet a nice boy soon. It's going to be fine. This is just a little thing where we learn that there are sea monsters. But the grandparents turned it off. And so now my girls think that Luca is a scary movie. That's what when they hear Luca, they think scary movie because they didn't get past the first three minutes when it's scary to get to, hey, there's a nice boy who takes care of fish. So I'm hoping to someday show it to him, maybe if, if I show them all the Pixar's at some point. But so that's why I hadn't checked this box. That's interesting. Yeah, this one, Soul and Onward, I watched pretty much as soon as they dropped on Disney+. Plus. It took me a little longer to see Turning Red. Uh, that's one that seems to have stirred up a, l- a little bit of controversy, probably mostly from people who haven't seen it. Interesting. Um, but I, I did get around to seeing that one in the lead up to today. Cool. Well, let's center on Luca here. But before we dive in, Brian, when we checked in last week, you were getting ready to go to a film festival where something very special was happening. An episode from your beloved Count Gauntley's Horse from the Public Domain was going to be screening in a film festival, the 100th episode, which I appeared in, and you, of course. And so now that weekend has come and gone, so why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so that was the episode that we traveled down to Orlando for. It's when we filmed episode 50 of the podcast and covered Gravity Falls. It was just big milestones all around because we went down... And we toured the Creative Engineering Robotics Warehouse with Aaron Fector, creator of the Rockafire Explosion that we had previously covered in a podcast episode, the uh, animatronic Chuck E. Cheese band. And so that's what screened at the film festival. I was also a featured speaker at a panel that I put together talking about my public access experience. So that was fun. Uh, The panel actually got a better turnout than the screening. But then the weekend culminated in the screening of something called 24 Speed, which is a contest that my alma mater puts on every year where you have 24 hours to make a short film. And at the start of the 24 hours, you're given an assigned line of dialogue and a prop that everybody has to put into their films. And then each team that's making a movie has a different assigned genre. And so this year, I didn't even think I was going to be able to do it because I originally was going to have a conflict on Saturdays. I found out on Friday I wasn't going to have that conflict, and then Friday night was 24 speed. So I pretty quickly put together a film with the assigned genre of musical and listeners will know that i'm fond of a fair few musicals (laughs) and so i did put something together and it it turned out that it won it got the grand prize which was yeah it's like a little a sticker basically well it's a golden teaspoon this year uh in the past they didn't give out anything but uh other than just uh the title and so yeah way to go that's so cool. Hey, thank you. You're an award-winning filmmaker, Brian. That's right. It won out over, uh, there were 13 entries total, so. Wow. Not not too shabby. It's the first time I've won since 2015, so it's been a, been a few years. That's really cool. Congratulations. Hey, thank you. And I went to your panel virtually. I didn't get to go down to William and Mary for the film festival, but they were streaming the, the panel portion on 
Zoom. And of course, I've seen the actual episode itself before. And so it was very cool to see you kind of talk about the show that you worked so hard on for so many years and how it came about and what it meant to you and what the inspirations were and teaching. I assume it sounded like there were some college students there teaching them a little bit more about like what public access is and how this is like a different avenue to making your own vision come to life. So I thought that was really cool. And I thought you did a great job with that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. There will be a recording up at some point. I'm eager to watch it back. Uh, but listeners, if you want to check that out, uh, we'll, we'll hit you with a YouTube link at some point. Cool. Yeah. And then maybe we can find some way to incorporate Count Gauntly into an episode. I don't know exactly what that would look like, but I, that's an idea that I have some point. We can talk because we've mentioned it a whole bunch of times and right, right. we haven't actually like really dug into it on the pod. And I think that would be fun to do at some point. Yeah, that's a that's a good idea. I'm sure we could toss on a public domain film. Yeah, something something like that. So, actually, I, I we've already watched at least one yeah. public domain film. Could you could you name it? Uh, well, I, we watched Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead. That's right. And uh, now, actually, I'm thinking it's we've had two. Was Bucket of Blood public domain now? Bucket of Blood. Yeah, Roger Corman's got a few public domain. Yeah. So very cool. And I feel like oh, uh, DOA. Remember, I mentioned that that was also public domain. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it had. You could watch it on Wikipedia, right? Yeah, that's right. I I love that when a movie is public domain, you're like reading about it on Wikipedia, and it's a button to like play it. Right, just click this play button in the middle of Wikipedia, and it'll start streaming the 90 minute movie for you. I love that. So, and uh, also, I guess in um, January, everything before 1926 is public domain now so that would make um charlie chaplin's the circus oh uh, was that tw was that 28 or was that 25 well uh, let's take a look can check that out 1928 never mind we gotta wait a couple years uh, rats gotta pirate it for a while <laughs> sorry chaplin sorry to be stealing your riches from the grave it's getting close though two more years yeah but brian let's talk luca yeah 2021 Pixar. So I'm in a couple of movie forums, fan movie forums, and the one that I'm most active in is the Discord that's for the community surrounding the alternate ending podcast. And that won't be the last time you hear me mention alternate ending tonight. But a lot of the people there are, are really into animation, uh, in part because they kind of followed Tim Brayton, the critic at alternate ending and he is getting his doctorate in studying animation he has written you know thousands and thousands of words about animation reviewed every walt disney animation studio movie every dreamworks movie every pixar movie over on his review website alternateending.com and just has a tremendous knowledge of the the medium and so a lot of kind of animation fans have found their way to the the alternate ending discord and people Tim in particular, and I think some other people, are kind of down on the general aesthetic of Luca, which is to say, we've kind of talked about this a little bit with Gravity Falls, um, and it's come up before too, I think, uh, over the garden wall as well. This kind of style is resembles the what has been termed the Cal Arts style, which is a little bit of a derisive name, I think. And then another derisive term for this style of kind of cartoonish character designs and slightly fluid character animations 
bean mouth is the other phrase because their their mouths are kind of shaped very rounded like a bean yeah i I think bean mouth fits um i mean cal arts we've talked about it a little bit in the past that that's definitely a, a buzzword that's getting used recently to describe this style uh, but animators have been coming out of that school forever so it's it's like it's like the post 2010 cal arts specifically but like john lasseter was at cal arts and right you, you know there, there have been different cal arts styles presumably yeah um but i i, I I know what you're talking about, and, and it's definitely jarring because it's a departure from what I had thought of as the Pixar house style as sort of established by, like, Incredibles and the, the follow-ups. Like, I mean, if you look at the humans walking around in, like, Good Dinosaur or, I mean, any number of stuff, the, the Toy Story sequels, there's kind of a homogenous Pixar person style that had emerged, and this is radically different from that. They're much more cartoony. It's it's feels to me like when we had, say, uh, Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask followed up by The Wind Waker. And suddenly it's way more cartoony. Like, if if you were me at 10 years old, I was expecting, oh man, when the GameCube rolls around, we're going to get the super realistic Zelda. It's going to look awesome. And then they drop the trailer for Wind Waker and it's like goofy and wild colors and big anime eyes and not what i was expecting and it still turns out to be a great game but i never quite lose that feeling of what what if and and why did they choose to make such a radical departure that's interesting yeah so i almost come at it from the opposite perspective at least on wind waker i mean i was biased in that one because i never actually had an n64 so i wasn't used to 3d zelda being a slightly more realistic and serious animation style, but I really loved how cartoonish Wind Waker was. And I feel like it's made that a little bit more timeless because when you're kind of that stylized and cartoony, you just age a little bit better because if you're going for realism, realism advances very rapidly in the technology industry, but stylized stuff stays stylized you know like maybe it could be rendered better in a stylized manner but if you're doing it in a very intentional style it always looks like that style and that that kind of always has a certain energy to it but i love wind waker i'm a little biased on that i don't have any preconceived positive or negative notions on the cartoonishness the this whole character design and and, and animation style with luca what to me is even more striking than the aesthetic is that this comes from not Pete Doctor, not Lee Unkrich, not Dan Scanlon, not who is like the brain trust and then the junior brain trust of Pixar, but a fresh voice, a younger animator. Enrico Casarosa is the, the director and kind of the creative voice of Luca. And he had done a Pixar short and this is where I think Luca and Turning Red kind of tie together. Uh, Turning Red also was a brainchild of a young animator who made their chops in the shorts department. And I think it's an interesting direction for Pixar to go to start phasing away, phasing out of their their brain trust into these these younger voices. I mean, I know it's kind of been a goal all along for for the studio. Like they tried to do it with Brave with Brenda Chapman. And then that kind of backfired. They had a falling out with Brenda Chapman. And 
uh, ended up handing it to someone else, another white man, which was somewhat controversial at the time. But I think it's really interesting to see these new voices. And I get excited for the the new voice ones more than I do the, the kind of older ones at this point. It's like you get all of the amazing animation technology and, and vision of Pixar, but you're going to, it's going to be something new and it's going to be something different. So I don't know. Hmm. I mean, at some point they inevitably have to bring in some new people because time goes forward, people age. So yes, it's, it's good that uh, there's some, some more people coming into the tent and turning red also seems to have a similar animation style to this one. I thought, the the way the people look is is kind of um kind of similar. Yeah, I think they both have the younger generation that watched a whole lot of anime, watched a whole lot of those 2000s cartoon network shows and I think you're definitely seeing animators who were raised on a different style that it's definitely leaned toward the more cartoonish and the more stylized for sure. Mm-hmm. Less realism at least in the characters. But this director, Enrico Casarosa, had previously made the Pixar short Luna. Hopefully, whatever his next film is, he changes up the title a little more than just one letter. Luba? Yeah, no. I don't want to keep track of Lupa. <laughs> See, are there any other? Hold on. Uh, no, I can't come up with any others. Luda is not like uh, Latin for games or something like that. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, puzzles. So shall we hop into the movie? Any other kind of state of the Pixar uh, prelude thoughts before we dive in? Oh, we'll get there. So let's dive in to the undersea world. So Luca opens with, as I kind of mentioned, this little snippet of a boatsman encountering a sea monster before after a couple minutes shifting to our title character, Luca. So Luca is one of these sea monsters, but... You know, he's not scary. He's a, he's a young man, a, a boy, probably around 10 or 12. I would say, pro- yeah, maybe 12. I would peg him at. I don't know if we ever get an official age. And he has protective parents. And they kind of live in a sort of pastoral undersea uh, farm world, farm life. And I think I read this on the Wikipedia article. I don't know if it's explicitly mentioned or we're just supposed to infer but this is apparently the 1950s, and we are very clearly in and around Italy, specifically the Italian Riviera, I think. Yeah, we get some context clues of when the period is. Uh, there's not a lot of modern technology. I almost would have thought it was even earlier than that, but a Vespa plays a prominent, important part in the story. So it's at least as recent as those being around. And Luca... As we see Luca doing his day-to-day life, and this stretch doesn't go on for that long, just a couple minutes, but we get some vague whiffs that he longs for something more. He, he dreams for for a better life. He wants to be part of their world. He doesn't know where there is yet, but he he wants. He wants adventure in the great wide somewhere. Exactly. Not a musical. I feel like this could have been a musical. I don't know why I feel that way, but it feels like this movie could have been a musical. Mm-hmm. Hits some beats that musicals hit. But one day he encounters what he fears to be a human. And we have a little bit of this sort of Monsters Inc. Uh, am I more scared of them than they are scared of me? There's just a couple hints of it. It doesn't really 
dig into that, but we, we gather that maybe the sea monsters are more scared of humans than vice versa because we see what appears to be a man in sort of like a old school scuba suit, like from Bioshock or something. And it turns out to be another sea monster, uh, another boy sea monster named Alberto. And Alberto basically invites Luca up to the shore, which Luca is forbidden to visit. But when he goes up there, he realizes that sea monsters, when they come out of the water, they turn into people. So as soon as you dry off, you become a person. But once you get wet again, once you encounter more water, you get your scales back. You turn back into a sea monster. So you got this duality, sea monster, but also person. What do you think of this premise, Brian? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Anytime you can do sudden like phase changes between one medium and another and, and have that dramatic visual change is kind of cool. Have you seen other movies that use this kind of mermaid rules? I don't think so, actually, because I was wondering, for example, they're in the hot summer in Italy. Wouldn't they be sweating a lot? Are they does their own sweat? make them immune from transformation. There is one point where a dewy morning makes them transform. But I guess there's like water vapor. You know, what if they, I don't know. It just feels like this rule wouldn't actually work. Yeah. Not this mechanic specifically. I thought of the, I'm going to spoil the movie Signs. Have you seen the movie Signs? Uh, no, I actually haven't seen that one, but I have read the plot summary. Okay. If you don't want to have the movie signs spoiled for you, jump ahead 30 seconds. But the premise of that one is they're expecting an alien invasion and the aliens eventually come. And the thing that they are weak to is water. So it's like they pick the worst possible planet to invade. And it just really is the first time I really thought about how water is literally everywhere and how easy it is to come. Like there's water vapor in the air and all that. And I just thought that was incredibly stupid here. I think it works a little bit better just because it's a cartoon and you're able to kind of suspend that disbelief a little bit. But do you know of any other mermaid movies that have these specific mermaid rules? Yeah. So the fourth pirates of the Caribbean had mermaids like this, where if they walk up out of the water, they, they become people. Mm. And then there was also a TV show called H2O. I think it was Australian originally. And it was like shown in America on teen Nick where it's these teen girls who are secretly mermaids. Interesting. I don't think I've seen that one. So it's out there. I mean, mythologically, there's also like, I think it's either Kelpies or Selkies, where it's like they're seals in the water. And then if they come up on land, they're people. So I don't know. It's it's an interesting way of presenting the, the mer person that has some precursors, but it's not necessarily the go to uh, mermaid that we might think of. Right. It doesn't, doesn't have to make any kind of deal with a sea witch. So this Alberto, this other boy that Luca meets, uh, he's going to be kind of the other main character for the rest of the movie here. He is a Huck Finn-esque character, a roaming orphan, but not a suffering roaming orphan, a mischievous roaming orphan who just kind of is the, the kid's fantasy version of someone without parents where you just do whatever you want to do all day and that's your life. And uh, he really charms Luca. He kind of lives in this tower. I don't know exactly what this tower is supposed to be, like a, a silo or like a medieval watchtower type thing. And they spend the next several days just playing together, 
experimenting with bikes and building stuff and just having a good time listening to Italian music. Oh man, I love the fifties Italian music so much in this just adds so much flavor to it for me. Yeah. This viewing, it had me thinking of the sequence in the outsiders Mm. when it's the two guys in the abandoned barn or whatever abandoned church. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good comparison actually for, for a handful of reasons. Eventually, they talk about, as you mentioned, Vespas. So there's a poster of a Vespa. And Luca and Alberto are very smitten with Vespas. They see that as the symbol of freedom to go and live wherever they want, however they please. It's their, their access to the world. And it just kind of becomes the symbol of freedom for them. Have you ever ridden a Vespa, Brian? I've ridden a mini bike. Okay. Which is like a, a small motorcycle. It's not as scootery as a Vespa. It it looks more like a normal motorcycle. It's just kind of small. So that's kind of close, I would say. But what about you? No, I have not. Uh, I haven't really ridden too many motorized scooters or anything like that. I will say I've seen a lot of Vespas. One reason I enjoy Luca is it really captures the charm of small town Italy and I went to Italy in 2016 and it was by far the best vacation I've ever been on. Just so enthralling to, to visit this other country. And we got, to, we spent a while there. We got to see all these different types of cities and towns and there's really just something charming. And then you really do see a lot of people riding around on scooters like this. I, I don't recall if they were Vespa brand or anything, but it definitely brought me back to, to that trip and when you would just see people zooming around streets on their, their little colorful scooters. Yeah, we'll have some Italy talk this episode because I've also been to Italy. That was way back in 2006, but I still remember it. It's a cool place. What are some cities you visited? Yeah, we it was a great trip. So we landed in Rome and then we went to Florence. We spent some time in Tuscany and a couple of small villages there. We went to Siena, um, and then we went to Venice, and that was how we ended our trip. I think we might have driven back to Rome when we flew out, but yeah, it was about 10 days, and I would say, I mean, just about every place we stopped won me over. Florence had been hyped to the moon to me, and that one felt the most like a normal American city to me, like the least special. Um, Rome and Venice are each very distinct in their own ways. Siena, extremely distinct as well. Um, and then, of course, Tuscany. Actually, Tuscany reminded me a lot of like if you go drive out to vineyards in like Western Virginia, like an hour from where we are. I assume you've been to wineries out there before, Brian. And it's not exactly the same, but it's like a similar climate, uh, relatively similar type terrain. So that that was pretty magical, but also pretty familiar, too. So. But uh, yeah, I, I loved Italy. What what were some of the, the places that you hit? So on this same trip, we did mostly like a cruise around the Greek islands. I think I probably mentioned this in our Titanic episode, just like you mentioned your Italy trip in our summertime Venice episode. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are things, waters that we've dipped our toes in. But Italy-wise, we went to the island of Capri. We went to Rome, uh, the Vatican City feel like we we probably made it to one other italian city not venice so uh, someday someday i'll have to do venice too but it it was cool the food was better than in greece i'll say that i don't think that's too hot a take 
I was getting tired of moussaka. <laughs> and then we got to Italy and we had foods that I had heard of. Yeah. Lots of noodles and pizza is what I had. Yep. Which is cliche, but it is what I ate and it was delicious. So lots of wine, of course. Oh, yeah. Always good when you're 16. But yes, lots of wine. <laughs> One recurring bit I like here is whenever Luca gets scared, he's supposed to say Silencio Bruno. That's what Alberto teaches him. Bruno is the name of his inner skeptic voice. Silencio Bruno. And of course, I'm sure you know what this made me think of here in 2022. It is Encanto with We Don't Talk About Bruno, which gets played on the daily in my house. So that was some nice Disney Pixar synergy. Yeah, it's kind of odd that such a prominent thing. I mean, it's not a character here, but it's said many times. And I mean, Encanto also came out by the end of 2021. So one has to wonder. Less prominent, there's... Uh, a character who's like a lackey of the villain in this film, whose name is Guido. And there's already an Italian Pixar character named Guido. It's the little forklift pit stop helper in the Cars films. Oh, man. So it's like, is no one consulting their Pixar style guide? It's like, <laughs> we already have these branded characters, guys. Yeah. You got to use a different name. I don't know. Maybe they went rogue. You got If you're going to have an obnoxious Italian, he's got to be named Guido. So... Eventually, Luca gets caught sneaking up on shore and his parents threaten to send him away with his creepy uncle. So he runs off with Alberto and he and Alberto, they decide to go to the nearby town. So, so far, they hadn't actually really been in a town. They had just been kind of in this abandoned building off to the sides. And now they're going to go encounter other humans, which, of course, raises the risk because while they're on shore... It turns out that this town that they go to, Porto Rosso, is infamous for fishing, as expected of a shoreline Italian town. And also, in particular, they have a hatred of sea monsters and like their town art is a sea monster getting stabbed. So it's a very risky place to be an undercover sea monster. So a couple things here. You glossed really quickly over the creepy uncle. <laughs> And I, I don't, I'm not going to let you do that. Okay, let's talk about the creepy uncle. Yes, this is Uncle Ugo, as played by Borat himself, Sasha Baron Cohen. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Just doing this outlandish voice, and he, he says he comes from the deep. So he, basically, he's like a Lovecraftian sea monster. For whatever reason, he's he's developed traits of like an anglerfish or, or other abyssal creatures. He's got like a, a lantern on his head and his skin has turned translucent so you can like see his organs on the inside. And of course, he has the cave fish eyes just all pale and, and useless because he's in the dark all the time. Yeah, he, he has this speech. He's like, come with me, Luca. You can live on the bottom of the sea and the whale carcasses will float into your mouth. You cannot stop them because you cannot see them. And <laughs> I don't know. This is a really out there moment. Just it, it comes and goes with very little to lead into it or out of it. It's, it's very abrupt. And there's nothing else in the movie like it. And we never see him again either. He, he disappears for this one scene. He's in a post credit scene. Okay. <laughs> and there's a weird bit where like his heart stops and Luca has to punch his heart. So it comes back to life. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, much grosser than anything else in the film. It definitely stuck out. But I think it's noteworthy. I, I like any time that Sasha Baron Cohen shows up. Yeah, he, he adds an energy to wherever, whatever project he joins. The other thing is this town's history with sea monsters made me want to know more about the sea monster culture than we ever get in the film. Because... The humans call them sea monsters, but we never learn the sea monsters term for themselves. They just seem to accept that they're sea monsters. Whereas, like, there's a couple times when, like Dan said, they're afraid of the people and, and they say, oh, it's, it's land monsters up there. But they still know the term human and they use the term human. But we never get another term for what these sea monsters are. I want to know their lore. I want to know, like, was there ever a time that they menaced people? Do they ever actually do anything violent? Or is it a, a zombies situation? Like, are they just, do they just have the blue scales? Well, this, this is something that Monsters, Inc. does amazingly well. It's like you really know what their monster society is like and what they think of themselves and what they think of humans. And you're right, it adds a dimension that is kind of missing here because that ends up being essentially thematically a non-factor. Like th they decided this movie isn't about this idea that the sea monsters are just as scared of the people as the people are scared of the sea monsters. It's going to do different stuff with the image of the sea monster than that. Sure. And so it doesn't really dig into that, but I think you're right that it does feel a little bit shallow in that regard. Um, Porto Rosso is not a real town though. I, I looked it up to confirm. It sounds like it. And I'm sure there are similarly named very towns in this part of Italy that are look a lot like this, but made up town. And part of their made up town is they have this race. And I, I like this race a lot. It's it's a triathlon. And the three legs are swimming. OK, biking. OK, and eating pasta is the third leg of that. So you got it. It's in between. I think it's between the swimming and the biking. Yeah, that's right. And this just sounds like something. I know this was, I'm pretty sure that Enrico Casarosa is Italian. Seems like a safe bet. Yeah, it says here he's Italian-American. It, it sounds like something that someone who was making a Italian stereotype movie, like who hadn't actually ever met an Italian would make, that like their triathlon would be eating pasta, eating spaghetti, you know? <laughs> yeah. What I think is interesting is that you can compete as a team and split up the legs of the race. I think that, you know, reduces the challenge of the pasta portion. You should have to eat the Porsche, eat the pasta and do everything else. So something was tickling my brain as I was watching. I was like, this makes me think of something and I can't remember what. And it now occurs to me exactly what it is. And that is the Chipotle mile. Exactly. So, Brian, can you tell us about the Chipotle mile? Yeah, so the Chipotle Mile is an eating challenge where one runs a quarter mile, eats a Chipotle burrito, runs another quarter mile, eats another Chipotle burrito, third quarter mile, third burrito, and then finishes out the race. Sometimes it's done so that there's a burrito before the first leg, and so it's four total burritos, but the way I did it and the way I originally understood it was three burritos. I ran this race my senior year of college. Actually, it's it's coming up not too far away from the anniversary on May 7th. But the, this is one of my proudest moments because I finished first. It took me 43 minutes. There were five people who ran, three finished. I was first. 
and there's a documentary about it. So if we ever materialize a multimedia section, uh, you'll get a link to that too. Award-winning filmmaker, award-winning burrito eater. We got a man of many talents on this podcast. Exactly. Two men of many talents, but those are mine. So in this town, Porto Rosso, they quickly encounter a shiny new Vespa. And this Vespa is owned by a, I was going to say a gentleman, that's not the right term, a character named, I think it's Urkel. So I kept listening. It sounds like Urkel, but I think it's Urkel. Yeah, yeah. They say, they say Urkele, like very accented. But I, I think it's like the same name as like Hercule Perot, the, the French dude. It's, I think it's like the Italian version of that name. Okay. Like, you know, like Hercules. It's like Ercola. Something like that. Yeah, I can see it. So he's he's like this bully character in American parlance. He's the guy who was the star quarterback in high school. And then he just hung around the bar as a town talking about the time he threw the touchdown pass for for the next, you know, 15 years. Except this is like an early, early form version of that guy. He's he's a annoying guy who's kind of a legend but also everybody's kind of tired of and annoyed with and he's kind of intimidating and he he always wins this race yeah he's 16 but peaked at 10 (laughs) yeah something like that (laughs) i like that and the main target of ercola's bullying derision is julia who is this girl who is luca and alberto's age and she is just focused on winning this this race this year you mentioned it the rules are of the weird i didn't like how weird the rules were so you can either be a team or you can not be a team and just be a person and that feels like radically different compositions of like what the the experience of, of doing this it's like I don't see why you would ever do it on your own. Just like get one person to actually eat the pasta for you or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. What one would think it would be way easier to do if you have a whole team, because each person's going to be fresh. The person who eats the pasta just has to eat the pasta. It, it seems like that would be way easier and have much better results than trying to do it all yourself. This nagged me a little bit throughout the movie, especially towards the end, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But Julia has been competing on her own and and she recruits Luca and Alberto to join them. So they're this they're going to compete and the incentive for Luca and Alberto is after they saw this one really shiny Vespa, they figured out that they could win this race and get the money and use that to buy a used Vespa, although it won't be quite as shiny. It's like a dingy old beat up one that they see. And you said that bothered you or what bothered you? The the team thing? Oh, the mechanics of the race. They did. It never quite clicked for me. Yeah. All right. I understand. And then also around this time that we learn about this race, Luca's parents emerge from the water themselves to try and find Luca. Because, you know, Luca ran off when they were sending him away with the creepy, dark, deep ocean, Sacha Baron Cohen uncle. And now they're like, oh, we got to go find our son. So this is the point where we hit kind of the promise of the premise of the movie, where Luca and Alberto are doing their best to avoid being detected either by the rest of Porto Rosa for being sea monsters, but also by Luca's parents who know they're sea monsters. And they're also training for this triathlon. So Alberto 
is going to be the pasta guy and Luca is going to be the bike rider and Julia is going to be the swimmer. Convenient that she's the swimmer so that it's not going to reveal Luca or Alberto. Yeah, they dodged a bullet there. They just immediately say, well, we're not going to be the ones who swim. And they spend a lot of time at Julia's house and they meet Julia's dad, who's this reminded me a little bit of the dad in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs because you can't see his eyes and he's got some some heavy eyebrows going. And he claims his arm was bit off by a sea monster. So he is especially anti-sea monster, increasing the danger for, for Luca and Alberto here. What did you think of this dad? I think he's pretty cool. I definitely also saw a similarity to the, the father in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which I know is a, a movie you quite enjoy. Uh, it's definitely grown for me after having read an article that you wrote about it. I do like that one. Um, but I'll, I want to clarify, I think he may make a joke or something that he got it eaten by a sea monster, but then once they get to know each other, he says that he was actually born without the arm. Oh, really? When did he say that? I must have missed that. He, he says, this is how I came into the world. Mm, okay. That must have just not clicked for me, whatever that line was. And he's a fisherman. And so he kind of recruits Luca and Alberto to help out with the fishing, which again, more danger because they got to go out on the water. And this big old guy, the dad is like moving around the boat and sloshing the boat. So water splashing up and they're kind of dodging it. And yeah, it's always kind of fun watching them trying to avoid being being detected. And I liked the dad and the way that he bonded with Alberto in particular. It's like one thing we learn about Alberto eventually is that he, of course, is not unexpected, like given the intro that we had where he kind of mentioned he had a dad. It turns out he's got some daddy issues going on where he has not quite let go of, of his father, who has apparently abandoned him. Yeah, daddy sea monster went out for some smokes and never came back. And so it's kind of nice when he hits it up with Julia's dad. And and meanwhile, Luca, on the other hand, is hitting it off with Julia. Uh, not necessarily romantically, as we would expect, although Alberto gets jealous of the attention that Luca's giving Julia. But more so that Julia is kind of a more cerebral, geeky learner. And Luca is kind of connecting with that. He loves the books. He loves learning about the universe. He's entranced by this idea of human school that Julia goes to when it's not the summer. So they kind of hit it off, and that brings some tension between Luca and Alberto. Yeah, it's interesting, because Luca is kind of at a point where he's seeing this broader world, and he's he's almost growing beyond his first friend. It's like he, he aspires to something more than what Alberto is offering, and Alberto is jealous because he kind of discovered Luca. And it, maybe there's other reasons too, but I mean, even if just that, there would be tension. Yeah, and they came into this world together, this world being the town, and they were partners, you know? So they were doing things together, and now that Luca is kind of showing interest in other stuff, it, yeah, it makes Alberto feel like less, because up until then, Alberto was like the boss man, the one defining the vision, the kind of the guide. Right, the cool, brave guy. Right, right. Luca made him feel like uh, strong and smart and, and wise and all that. Yeah, Huck Finn is a really good analog. I hadn't thought of that, but that's a good point. Any other thoughts on this this promise of the premise part before we kind of hit the the drama of the climax of this movie, Brian? Well, one thing you haven't said yet is that Luca's parents 
have come up out of the water to find him because early on they were the ones saying you never go to the surface never go to the surface and so this is their first time coming on land and becoming humans and uh, we get some comedy from that especially when they don't know what their son looks like in human form so any human boy could conceivably be luca and so they're running around grabbing children and throwing them into bodies of water to try to out him and i i thought that was pretty funny and we have um jim gaffigan here as the dad i thought uh more believable that this is how Jim Gaffigan would be as a dad rather than uh, in that other one. Um, it's kind of a funny story. Right. Where he was like the the condescending dad. Yeah, he's not like a stick in the mud, regressive ogre. Right. Uh, definitely buy him more as like a goofy, well-meaning person. <laughs> it's funny how being a person is less implausible to you than him being uh, kind of detached from his, his father-son relationship. Yeah. So the day before the big race, the the tension between Luca and Alberto and Julia is is reaching a fever pitch. And Luca starts talking about, well, maybe I can go to school with Julia. Maybe we should see what it's like if we follow in Julia's footsteps. And, you know, Alberto feels like he's losing Luca. And so uh, dramatically, the night before the race, Alberto outs himself as a person. He jumps into the water in front of Julia and and she sees what he really is. And it's kind of like a, a challenge to Luca. Like, let's see if they really accept us for who we are. Do you think really think we can be like real people in this world? And what Luca does is he feigns ignorance and shouts, sea monster, basically like uh, rejecting Alberto and Alberto's uh, declaration that we are different from the people here and we need to accept that not try to assimilate so smoothly in with them i thought this moment packed a good punch it was like a a powerful breaking point between alberto and luca yeah it's dramatic even though luca didn't really reveal himself it doesn't take long before julia figures it out that he's also a sea monster and basically she doesn't care but she's like you're gonna get caught and would they hate sea monsters here you're gonna get skewered and die so you got to go. We can't do the race together. So now Luca's at this crossroads. Is he going to stick with Julia's team or is he going to run off with Alberto? Well, he decides somewhat inexplicably that he's going to still do the race, but not on Julia's team. He's going to compete for himself, I guess, to win back Alberto or something. And Julia's also going to compete. So they're going to now... It'll be Julia will be, you know, 24 hours ago. Things were looking great. Now she's going to have to eat the pasta and bike again. And I guess Luke is going to have to do the the whole shebang himself as well. Yeah, this didn't bother me the first time I watched it, because I guess I was keeping track of so many other things. But it's certainly strange. Maybe they didn't want to figure out the logistics of having just a two person team now that Alberto is gone, because one person would have to run two legs. And maybe they couldn't figure out how to make that work. But it wouldn't have been hard because just we know Julia can eat the pasta. So she just goes and eats the pasta after she swims. She doesn't need to worry about barfing or having the the intestinal fortitude to bike after that because Luca would still be doing the biking. Okay, yeah, you cracked it. So I don't know what's up here. (laughs) But 
the result is that now Luca's got to get in the water during the the thing. And he puts on this that same old fashioned scuba suit that he met Alberto with, and he kind of like walks underwater while everybody else is swimming. One gag here that got a laugh out of me is the bullies team. He pours olive oil onto the swimmer because the idea is it's going to make him slicker. So he'll just glide across the water, which is already a ludicrous idea. But then all these little fish start biting him. And I don't know why I didn't like the bully character all that much. But for some reason, I found that gag very funny. The the guy seems really into getting the oil poured on him. (laughs) I don't know. He just he really seems to enjoy that experience. Yeah. Luca makes it through the swim, manages to avoid detection, forces the pasta down, starts biking. As we could have expected, it's now a three-way race. It's either the bully or Julia or Luca in this final stretch. But trouble is brewing in multiple ways, but most directly, the rain's coming. And we know as soon as they get wet, he's going to be outed. So the question is, can he finish the bike race before the the rain comes and but unfortunately he doesn't make it so he has to hide under this awning and while he's hiding under the awning alberto comes back and says you could do it luca and i guess alberto he's got this big umbrella so this idea is like maybe luca can use the umbrella to go down or something but what ends up happening after this is alberto gets outed now not just to julia but to the whole town and and Alberto is going to use this to, like, distract everyone else. So it'll be a chance for Luca to go through himself. And, and it's like a, to help Luca win. But Luca basically still has to go out in the rain. So he, like, throws himself out there, too. And it says, I'm a sea monster, too. So now the sea monsters are racing together again. Julia knows, doesn't care. She's racing, too. The bully also now is a sea monster hunter, too, I guess. He's not just a bully and not just a competitor. He's also a sea monster hunter. He's throwing spears and stuff at them. But at last, they they cross the finish line. Uh, Luca and Alberto cross the finish line first, but Julia has crashed. So they run back to go and help Julia. And the whole town now seeing them, including the dad, that these kids are sea monsters and everybody's kind of closing in on them. But then the dad is the one he makes the he did, makes the brave move. We know he hates sea monsters particularly, but he recognizes Luca and Alberto and kind of claims them as as his own. So I thought this was a sweet moment here when when we get that the payoff on the connection between the dad and the two kids, particularly Alberto here near the end. And he declares that because they crossed the finish line first, they must be considered the winners. And there's no rule in the rule book that says a sea monster can't win the trophy. <laughs> it's like some airbud shenanigans right nothing in the rule book says a dog can't play basketball as far as uh airbud shenanigans go it's not as bad as cars 3 which i think we both watched this weekend where it's like well it says the same number car must finish the race it doesn't say it has to be the same car yeah i have some thoughts about cars 3 <laughs> so now that that luca and and alberto won they get to buy their vespa they get to go on their their great journey but in kind of a, a touching conclusion, Alberto's like, no, nah, Luca, you got to go to school. You got to go learn. Go to, go join Julia's school. And he sells the Vespa to buy a ticket for Luca to hop on the train and go with Julia. And meanwhile, Alberto's going to stay with Julia's dad and help him fish. And 
some other interesting things. Other members of the town kind of out themselves as, as sea monsters as well. Okay, so I was wondering, when I watched this, I saw it with a couple other people, and immediately, at the point that they go into the town, the people I was watching with were talking, oh, who else in the town is a sea monster? Which is not even something that I had thought about, but it's a good point, because if you just immediately take on a human guise when you come up out of the water, any number of them could be. The whole town could be actually sea monsters. And so I was wondering, did you have suspicions of anybody also being incognito? No, it didn't really cross my mind. But there's lots of evidence there for it because, yeah, I mean, they do it and then the parents do it. It would have been kind of interesting if they had like inadvertently outed someone at some point, you know, because they're like splashing water on everyone. But it, it's nobody who matters. It's like these two old ladies who are walking around throughout the movie eating gelato. Right. Which, when you went to Italy, did you have gelato, Dan? I did, multiple times. Okay. Yeah, yeah me, me too. That's a good thing that they've got there. Yeah. Extra creamy ice cream, yeah. And then the movie ends with a, a, a great train scene. If I had already seen this movie, I might have said top five train scenes or something like that as a topic for this podcast. But he waves to Alberto... As the train pulls out, the other Italy movie we watched also ended with a train pulling out and waving goodbye to someone. That was summertime. I guess it's an, a distinctly Italian thing, or maybe it's just a distinctly mid-century thing. Maybe, I think that's probably more apt. That's a good poll. Yeah, it was similar to the end of summertime. A little more upbeat here. Yeah, yeah. But it had some like similar shots where you kind of see the edge of the town, like just off to the side of the... The train, similar style shots. This choked me up, I gotta say. I really, really thought this was a sweet ending. It, like, properly paid homage to the relationship between the the friends, Alberto and Luca, the partners, that they had kind of a special and unique bond, but also that these things don't last forever. And, you know, it gives us hope that they'll reunite, but it also acknowledges that friendships can be fleeting, particularly these transformative types of friendships and... I don't know. It got me choked up. Yeah, and things end well for everybody involved. Like, nobody's completely at a loss because Alberto's kind of found a surrogate father and now Luca's going to go off and live a life with broader horizons. We get, like, these little snapshots during the credits of what they're doing afterwards, and it's nice. It's sweet. I agree, definitely. And that's how the movie ends. We get a, a little bit of a credit sequence where we see what happens in the future. And sure enough, it's it's all nice things. But that's how Luca 2021 ends. So, Brian, let's talk some good things and not so good things about Luca. Sure. Here's my pitch on, on if you're going to describe Luca to someone. And even this doesn't capture all of it. But it's Little Mermaid meets Finding Nemo meets Tom Sawyer with a flash of Tangled. Just a touch of Tangled in there. It's like the, he's been uh, sheltered and now he gets to go out and experience this dangerous world. Right. Tom Sawyer is a really good comparison. I hadn't thought of that. I, I see a lot of it now that I'm thinking about it and how at the end, you know, Huck gets adopted by the widow and he, she's going to civilize him. Uh, meanwhile, Tom's got Becky. Uh, and yeah, I, I can see that. Uh, Little Mermaid, I've heard brought up multiple times, and the, it starts out certainly very similarly, where you've got the people on the boat talking about, well, you know, there's 
sea people and then it cuts down to the the sea people civilization and the the young mer person who's obsessed with human stuff so there there is a lot of that but uh i would compare this to other cryptid puberty stories okay like teen wolf maybe or i saw a lot of similarities with the newest pixar film turning red i agree because uh, in that one it's a girl who is experiencing puberty the onset of it and what comes with that is metamorphosing into a huge red panda right yeah it's like the reverse instead of going uh monster to human and luca it's it's human to monster and turning red which i think makes it much more explicitly a puberty parable but yeah right yeah so here i mean you could use the term coming of age which is basically the same thing uh but i was also thinking about like teen wolf and another film that i'll be bringing up in a minute here that uh, specifically involves mermaid puberty but more on that in a minute Hmm. okay so you mentioned this is a coming of age movie and it definitely is. I really love the just warm, uh, curious, enthusiastic, but also somewhat, you know, conflicted coming of age uh, story for Luca. It's it's really engaging for me. Like I would watch a whole miniseries or TV show of Luca and his day to day life in Porta Rosa. And I don't know, just like him meeting all the weird locals in town and. And oh, maybe sometimes he goes back underwater because weird uncle Sacha Baron Cohen is is visiting, and I just wanted more of this world and this this these characters and and to see more of their growth and and all the things they do because I, I just thought found it very inviting. Hmm. Yeah, it is nice. I wonder how much more story could be told. Maybe maybe there's something there. Just the vibe and the setting, I dug, which maybe isn't the coming of age aspect itself. Maybe that's more the setting, which I also really liked, but the tone clicked for me. And then, you know, for me, the verdict was out on the aesthetic, the visual aesthetic, and I liked it. I, I thought it worked. It felt kind of handcrafted, but also like a 3D cartoon come to life, but also still like not too plasticky or goofy. Like you just get used to the look and it just feels... I, I wish I had come up with this word myself, but I saw it online describing the animation style, and I think it's perfect. It's bespoke. It's like just such a, a cozy, handmade feeling to it. Yeah, it's, it strikes me as a little bit like uh, Wallace and Gromedy, like almost like derived from stop motion or something. It's just, it's a different look from... The other Pixar's and you, and you never get away from for me the sense that it's different and that's not bad it's not good necessarily it's distinctive from what's come before yeah I, I think it does I think it works for the movie right during the credits in these little like postcard pictures of the things that happen after the events of the film it's like a, a hand-drawn style and it looks a little different. And I, I wonder what it would have been like if it was like a whole hand-drawn movie like that. Ooh, okay. I, I think that would be cool, too. Yeah, because I like that style, too. I agree. It's like almost a, a sketchbook, almost comic-y look. And yeah, I think that could have been cool, too. Another thing that I would actually put in the good things category, but I think is just in general a really notable thing about this movie. So I had read... Not too much about the movie, but one thing that had popped up multiple times in what I had read is jokes about LOL 
two gay mermaid boys. And I don't know what I would have thought if I if I would have picked up on it or how much I would have picked up on it if I hadn't read that. But it is very easy to take a queer reading of this film where basically like the fact that they're trying to hide themselves and what their true colors are while still being honest about it with themselves, like between each other, definitely like reads as a coming out story in some ways. It's not a perfect one-to-one apples to apples because you have what you had with zombies where it's like the you're associating being like the minority, being the the one who who needs to to be the different one with also being a monster, which kind of has its own problematic stuff. But and that's something you brought up in, in zombies, which I thought was pretty astute. But I feel like it actually works really well here and kind of deepens it. And it's a it's a case where if you do choose to read it that way, I think it works well. But I also think the movie works just fine without it because they could just have a special friendship and you don't need to see that as metaphoric or even like the actual nature of their their strong connection. But I think looking at it that way and like the different dimensions it adds for ways that teens can feel like they have to hide themselves from the rest of the world that might be scary that their parents don't understand and all that, I think is a, is a powerful layer on this movie. Yeah. From early on in the movie, like maybe from as soon as they met, I was wondering how gay this movie was going to get. And nothing explicit ever comes about, but I think it can certainly be read that way. And I don't know, it it treads into the water a bit. Like, so they have this dream of getting the Vespa and like driving through Italy together. But then in like this dream sequence that they're imagining, there are many Vespas driving around. So there's like options they could sit on separate ones, but no, all throughout, they're they're both on the same Vespa. It's like, there, there's other ones there. You could Luca could have his own. But no, they're on the same one. And then, um, even more so, I mean, that's maybe um, grasping at straws, but then later on, there's the whole thing with, oh, Luca starts hanging out with a girl. And just, I mean, you see the green monster in, in uh, Alberto's eyes. Right. And yeah, there's multiple ways to read that, but uh, I saw it as like um, in Sherlock Holmes, uh, Watson's got a girlfriend, but uh, Sherlock doesn't. So I I don't know. I th- I think there are various ways to read the relationship. Yeah, well, and the train scene at the end has like strong romantic vibes to it for sure. I mean, it's it's very similar to the one that we wa- that we saw in Summertime, and that one was a man and a woman who had just had an affair, waving goodbye to each other. You know. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes about as close to being text that they have romantic feelings for each other without actually being text, you know? Right. It's like it it comes right up to the line. And I don't know. I read someone say that it was kind of cowardly for Disney to not actually make it explicit, you know, make it clear that that was what was going on between them. But I actually think it works just fine that they didn't. Like, I feel like you can get that if you, you want to get that out of it. And also you don't need to to appreciate the relationship that they have and kind of the strength of their connection too. Yeah, I agree. Oh, and on that note, so there's another movie about two young men in Italy who end up having romantic feelings for each other called Call Me By Your Name, which I haven't seen, but I think some of the character dynamics between these two are the same as the two leads there, where there's one who's like more experienced with the outside world and one who's less so. And A.O. Scott, the critic for New York Times, he headlined his review of Luca as 
calamari by your name it didn't reference the the angle of two boys being in love throughout the actual review but basically tipped his hand with that headline i thought that was a very clever headline yeah that's a great title in fact i i almost wish that i had come up with it so it could have been this episode title because it'd be hard to top that one the one that i really like as far as film criticism titles that are clever goes is an interview with Chris Pratt discussing the Jurassic World films that was called Parks and Rex. R-E-X. Yep. That's good. Any other good things you wanted to hit, Brian, or, or should we pivot to the not so good? Yeah, let's uh, let's take a look at the other side, the flip side. So what were some things that didn't work in this movie for you, Brian? All right. I don't know if this stuck out to you, but the sea monster characters have an inconsistent knowledge of the Italian language. Like... It's very clear that they all have Italian names and they speak Italian to each other and they can even read Italian because they see a poster that says Vespa is freedom in Italian and, and Luke is able to read it. But then like the townspeople that they meet say Italian phrases that Luca and Alberto don't understand. They hear two dudes calling each other stupido and then they're going around calling everybody stupido, including like nice old ladies and obviously that gets a bad reaction but why would they do that when they speak italian that's interesting it didn't even cross my mind it bothered me every time and it, it comes up uh, there's several things because there's like this mysterious phrase that alberto tells luca when they meet and they're like well what does that mean i don't know i hope you can find out someday in your travels it's like dudes you're in Italy. You're Italians. <laughs> this is your language. Right. You should know what these words mean. Yeah. It wouldn't sound like words you didn't know. It would just sound like words to you. Yeah. If you're Chinese and you're eating Chinese food, it's just food. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. What about you? Anything else you didn't like quite as much? Yeah. The, I had a handful of gripes. I, I mentioned I really did not like Ercola or Urkel as I was thinking of him as it went along. He was just annoying, and I know villains are supposed to be, you know, they're downsides, unlikable things about him, but just wasn't pleasant to spend time with. And I felt like he just kept getting shoehorned in as the villain in different ways. Like, sometimes he's the bully, sometimes he's the other race competitor, sometimes he's the bigot, and he just was kind of shoehorned in whenever they needed a little bit of conflict to come Luca's way. I thought that was, he was a little overdone. This time around, he was making me think of the villain from Zombies, the Buck, Bucky, the cheer captain. Yeah, I can see that. Where it's like, he's got to be the big man on campus, but also he has to be a blistering racist. Right, exactly, yeah. And then I think I hit my other thing that pulled me out, which is that I didn't really understand the rules, the racing rules, like, oh, sometimes, is it a team? Is it individual? Why would you ever compete individually? And, and all that, but uh, I already talked a little bit about that. So anyway, any other things you wanted to mention as a downside? No, uh, not really for me. The last thing that bothered me is I just feel like Luca himself never got proper definition at the start of the movie. We, we don't really know why he wants this great wide world or like what drives him. It, it takes most of the movie for us to figure that out and compare that to the best Pixar characters where they have really strong motivations really early. And I think Luca, the character, suffers in that regard and that he's just kind of a boy who just kind of wants stuff. And it's not until later that we get more of a sense of who he actually is. 
Yeah. I think that's the biggest, maybe not so good thing for me is it just, I don't know how memorable this one's going to be for me. It's, it's solidly middle of the pack Pixar that there's nothing that I like really dislike about it, but is this ever one that I'm going to point to as a great Pixar film? I, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Well, let's throw a rating on it, Brian. And, and I'd be curious, did you, you, did you rank all 25 Pixar movies? I did not, because you said we didn't have to do low lights. But I, I do have a, a very solid bottom pick, which I may share. Gotcha. As do I, yeah. So, Brian, is Luca good? I think it is good. And where I'm going to put it, because listeners, if you're new, we do have an eight-point rating scale. It goes from one out of eight, which we've termed a very not good movie, up to eight out of eight, our masterpiece rating, labeled Torday Good. For me, this is a good movie, a five out of eight, and it's a pretty high five because it is very stylistically pleasing. You know, I, I express some kind of mixed feelings towards the newness of the style, but I do think it works for the film. And that's that's what I'm feeling. Five out of eight. It's it's a good film. The story's told well. I'm glad that everybody uh, on the, the good guy side of the ledger comes out happy at the end. It looks like they've all got you know, fulfilling lives ahead of them. And the the parents, uh, you, even they have got uh, a nice existence to look forward to. They, they seem to have embraced the notion of the sea worlds and the land worlds mixing. And uh, it's nice. But what about you, Dan? Where do you slot Luca 2021? I waffled a couple times on this like what exactly score this was because my head was telling me one thing and my heart was telling me another thing and i i think just in the spirit of pixar being so meaningful to me i'm gonna go with what my heart is telling me and you might not have expected this from all the nitpicks i had this this movie really drew me in and i really felt it, it just emotionally it clicked with me uh more than movies have in a while i agree it's simple it's it's not as emotionally ambitious as other movies and Luca, the main character isn't quite as well-defined as other movies, but I was really charmed and won over. I'm going to give this a very low seven. I think this is an exceptionally good movie. I think it just wins you over and it's got a lot of heart to it. And, uh, you know, it's not top tier Pixar, but it's in the upper half of Pixar for me. So I really like this one. I mean, maybe next time I watch it, I'll come down a little bit off the, the high and, land on a six maybe that's where i should be because that's what my head's telling me but i'm going with my heart I, I think this is exceptionally good nice well sometimes it's good when we're more than just a point apart you know provides some some drama yeah but i think it's best of all if we're accurate yeah right but yeah so brian this uh this was fun to talk about luca but the special thing we're doing here top five pixar movies so shall we dive into this experiment this this formal experiment yeah, let's do it. Uh, I've got my list ready to go. I'm thinking I'll keep it uh, relatively brisk. Yeah, I think so too. Well, we can postmortem later on how this goes. Because one possibility, I think, is that we focus more on the list and less on the movie And if we ever do this again. But um, I'm glad we got to talk through Luca in some detail. Yeah. So here's just a little bit of a prelude. First of all, I've mentioned already today and many a times on our podcast history that the movie podcast I listen to most often is one called Alternate Ending. And 
they do quite a bit of top five episodes. And this was kind of quietly a reason that I was a little hesitant to do a top five episode up until now, just because I didn't want to feel like we were just aping my favorite movie podcast, you know? Aping your favorite movie review podcast? Who does that? <laughs> assume that's a reference to you and uh, Buzzed on Movies, Brian. Yeah, very astute. Yeah. So I just wanted to clear the air on that one. Anyways, top five Pixar movies. I did I did eventually get around to ranking the 25 movies. I have a distinct bottom, and then I have a glut of about like seven that are kind of loosely ranked. And then my my top 15 or so are pretty, I feel pretty solid about. But I'll just say I slapped a, is it good rating on all 25? Again, some of them I, I haven't rewatched in a few years, so I would need to rewatch to feel strongly about where I land. But I had one movie that I ranked as not good. I had four movies I ranked as good-ish. Three movies I ranked as good. Four I ranked as very good. Six I ranked as exceptionally good. And seven as I ranked as tour day good. So that means my top five is going to be excluding two tour day good movies for me, Brian. Wow. Yeah, that's not bad. I, I'm pretty passionate about Pixar. They were very formative to me in my, my movie taste. And I would say probably all five of my that I'm going to talk about here are in my top 50 movies of all time, which feels a little silly to say because it's like 10% of my top 50. But I don't see how any of them would rank lower than my top 50 movies all time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, making it just five was really hard. Yeah, yeah. A couple other things. I feel like we should go alternate fives, then fours down to number one. And let's not reveal if one of us says one that's uh, ranked better in our own list. So okay. if, if you put uh, Cars 2 as your favorite movie at number five, and I had it at number three, I wouldn't tell you I had it at number three. Cars 2 is my least favorite Pixar movie, Brian. That's the one I had at a not good. Okay. I guess it would probably be second from the bottom for me. Uh, and now the problem with Cars 2, as my friend put it, is that the story has nothing to do with the fact that they're cars. It's a spy film where the characters all happen to be sentient automobiles. Oh yeah. I mean, that's one of like four extremely stupid things about cars too. That's probably the stupidest one though. Like the series that's about racing, this has nothing to do with racing. Like they kind of have a racing framing story. It's, it's so stupid. And then I just hate Mater so much. Yeah, it's it's really the Mater movie. It's he's the protagonist to that one. But for me the worst one is Good Dinosaur. Oh man. I think I think it's just awful. Really? <laughs> I don't like Good Dinosaur at all. Bad Dinosaur. Yeah. Exactly. They when you when the movie has to tell you it's good in the first word of the title, that's a problem. <laughs> it's the it's the annoying dinosaur. He's he's just whining the whole time and like being swept along by the current. I don't know. That one, I, I, I didn't enjoy. It's, it's a weird, another case of weird animation. Like, they made the backgrounds hyper-realistic, and then the dinosaurs look like Barney or something. It, odd. Um, maybe they wanted to try something different from, like, Disney's Dinosaur from 2000, where it's, like, almost Uncanny Valley how realistic they made the dinosaurs. But, I don't know. Uh, it's the not good dinosaur for me. Yeah, two two out of eight for that one probably. Just just to give some credit to the lush landscapes, right? 
I have the good dinosaur ranked as number 20 out of 25, so I put five below it. Okay. I, I, I think it's a little underrated, but I still think it's low mid-tier or maybe just low-tier Pixar. It, it doesn't hold up with the, the best of them. I, I agree. Mm-hmm. But uh, on a more positive note, are we ready to... Yeah, top five. Break into our top fives? All tour de goods for me. Brian, should you go first or should I go first? You want to start off? Because I had the first rating for Luca. Sure. So for my number five movie, I have a masterpiece that I find works on a bunch of different layers. And that is the 2005 movie, The Incredibles. It's a great comic book movie. It's also a great deconstruction thereof. I think it's got some just incredible set pieces. But one thing I really like about Brad Bird in general is I think he uses the action of his movies, the set pieces of his movies to advance both the story and the themes. Uh, I think he's just a master at that. And I really like how each character's power is both like really visually interesting and like well explored, but also like tells you a lot about the character itself. And then it's a great family midlife crisis drama movie. I mean, it doesn't, you know, go too dark, but it goes darker than you'd think. There's like hints at affairs and stuff. And you really feel this family kind of, trying to hold together, but coming apart at the seams. I mean, back in 2005, I thought that this and Spider-Man 2 were basically the greatest movies ever made. And I haven't ever quite fully wavered on, on those opinions. I still feel that way sometimes. So incredible is my number five. Cool. At number five, I have Inside Out, which I think was 2015. And this is the one with head pilots. I like any time where you got a fictional conceit where you have like a boardroom inside the head as a representation of the decisions a character is making in their brain and that's driving them through their life. So uh, I, I believe this was directed by Pete Docter, who early on had worked developing the attraction Cranium Command at Epcot, which is essentially the exact same story. Uh, so this is Cranium Command as a feature film. I love the colors. I love the high concepts, some really emotional moments. It, it feels like an episode of the old Disney show, Wonderful World of Color, where they would like address some scientific topic through an animated short. I, I really like this one. I, I'd like to see more in this world. Nice. What have you got at number four? So number four, I have a movie that has probably been my most volatile mover up and down my own personal Pixar ranking over the years. My most recent rewatch placed it pretty firmly here in my top five, though, and I kind of feel like the more I would watch it, the more I, it would just improve its ranking. I just feel like I've really come around on it. And that is Wally from 2008, I believe. The first half hour is just so gripping and so inventive. It's almost like avant-garde with its lack of dialogue. Just this great juxtaposition of the, the Armageddon wasteland with the lively curiosity of Wally. And when he does that little dance to the Hello Dolly song, it's just one of my favorite bits of character animation ever. Uh, it's, it, it's so well done, this opening bit. It's absolutely brilliant. The problem for me has always been that I find the fat humans... And like the pivot to pretty heavy handed environmentalism parable, whereas like just seeing the Armageddon kind of spoke for itself in the, the first half. That is not quite as gripping to me. 
but I still think it all holds together. And honestly, when I rewatched it, I realized I had kind of made it out worse in my head than it actually is that that segment. We still get a lot of great fun robot stuff. And yeah, I, I think it's I think it's brilliant. It's just so audacious in, in a way that, like, for example, Luca is never anywhere as ambitious, you know, as the stuff that Wally is doing, even though it's 13 years later. By the way, I had Luca ranked at number 12 of the Pixar movies. Okay. Yeah, I might do something similar. Brian, what do you have at number four? So for number four, I have Finding Nemo. This is one that I've used many, many times leading video production classes to just set up the structure of a typical narrative arc. And I'll just show like the first 15 minutes from the introduction of Marlon and his son Nemo up to the abduction of Nemo. To, to kind of show how characters are introduced, we understand their personalities and their goals, and then we get an inciting incident. Nemo is gone. Now you're going to have to find Nemo. And over the course of the search, the characters are going to develop because Marlon wants to keep his son safe. He's, he's developed a desire to live a very sheltered life because, of course, he lost his wife and all his 400 eggs in that dark prologue uh, but Nemo meanwhile wants to strike out on his own and this is just a cool undersea story it's beautiful animation there's a bunch of memorable characters I like it it's it's an ocean spanning journey nice what have you got at number three Dan at number three I have the granddaddy of them all I have Toy Story it's a little bit of a grading on a curve or or kind of understanding the history when you watch Toy Story, because, I mean, it was the first computer animated movie ever. So it really looks that way when you watch it now. You know, they were so smart in making their main characters toys and not people so that it was OK for them to look like stiff plastic, you know. But what really makes this movie stand out is the writing. And, you know, it's it's fun. It's adventurous. But these characters and their dialogue is so good. Woody and Buzz Lightyear, just instant classic characters, but they're also stand-ins for much deeper ideas, and that's something that the sequels would would really tease out in meaningful ways. There's a like a, a playful nastiness to it. I love when the character when the toys are mean to each other in, in funny ways. Potato Head's just an ass the whole time. I I really struck me the last time I watched it. He's just never nice. He's cantankerous, and then Woody's like making fun of Buzz, thinking that he's a uh, space ranger and then you have the great you are a toy rant and just so inventive and also like making use of the new technology to really immerse us in the world and and do cool things with perspective and constructing these worlds you know the look is aged but the story hasn't aged and it still holds up and i still think it's a masterpiece so that's my number three is toy story good pick what about you brian at number three i have the incredibles I love the Cold War-inspired aesthetic. That's something that Brad Bird really seems to love. It's almost more like a spy movie than a superhero film. It seems to draw a lot from James Bond and that whole 60s spy vibe. And like you said, I, I love the training montage that goes on in this movie when Mr. Incredible has started taking on missions from syndrome and mirage and so he's getting physically fit 
he's happy and he's working hard, but he's also got this side life that's going on. And, and like you say, just the the suggestion of an affair, because it really is an affair, even if, he, if there's nothing uh, romantic or sexual going on. Uh, he's doing something he's not supposed to be doing, and he's keeping it from his wife because it's part of a midlife crisis. I mean, what other quote-unquote kids movie have you got where the main character is going through a midlife crisis? Uh, I like this one a lot. Great one, for sure. What's number two for you? So to put a movie above Toy Story, for context, in 2009, when I made a list of my top 100 movies, I had Toy Story at number 17. It's just a movie I treasure. So for me to put something above it is, is some extremely high praise. And so that's what you're getting with number two and number one, two two movies that are, are way up there all time for me. You know, I don't, I don't know if I'd put them quite in the same place, you know, top 15 or whatever, but I'll talk about my thoughts on number one in that regard. But I actually rewatched this movie today to just make sure that I felt like I felt strong enough to, to put it here at number two. And that is Finding Nemo. I think you nailed it. Uh, it's, it's a brilliantly structured story. Uh, normally, I don't like it when they're quite so episodic, but this one, all the episodes are so interesting. We just get all these different angles in sea life. You got the deep sea, you got the jellyfish, you got this tank, you have humans. One thing I think this movie does in a way that I've never seen paralleled is use CGI to convey scope of things, size of things. Like you really just feel how big the people are when they come down and they capture Nemo and how big the whales are and the sharks so imposing. And I think you could only do that with CGI and really make you feel it that way. This movie's scary. There's a strong sense of danger, and it, it leans into that adage of storytelling that just when you think you've made it hard enough on your protagonists, find a way to make it even harder for them in a way that doesn't ever feel cheap. You know, it just it always feels like they're right on the edge of a breakthrough, but never quite there. And amazing. I mean, the the look holds up, even though, you know, CGI has come along a long way. In, in almost 20 years, um, but it still looks great. And the part of that is the color design. Part of that's the character design. Just a, a great story with a huge emotional hook of a dad and his son separated. And you really feel that prologue. You know, people talk about Up's prologue all the time. I kind of feel like the Finding Nemo prologue works even better in in making you feel the the sadness and the fear that the the dad feels and that's Marlon. Uh, great voice acting. Ellen DeGeneres gets a lot of hate. I think she brought a lot of life to Dory here. Got Willem Dafoe in there as like the, the wise mentor, kind of parallel to Nemo. Just a masterpiece. Great movie. Holds up. Will always hold up. I love Finding Nemo. And Brian, what's your number two? Number two, I've got Wally. I just find this one really charming. I was drawn in from its opening moment where it's got that... Hello Dolly song as we're zooming in from outer space to the polluted earth. It's just all covered with garbage. And, you know, we had this squadron of robots left behind to clean up the earth. But over the centuries, most of them have just broken down. And the only one who stayed alive is because he's developed sentience and has like cannibalized all the other ones. It's it's really interesting. And not only does he do his job during the day, but he's like got his hobbies. and He's got this little museum that he's building. And even even once the globby people show up, I think it's like darkly funny. Uh, they're all sipping their 
septuocentennial cupcake in a cup. I vibe with this one. I don't think they'd be able to survive once they get back to Earth at the end and all they have is one plant and, like, the idea of how to make more. I just don't think it's going to work out well for them. But uh, I, I, I still like it. It'd be interesting to see uh, if we each made, like, remade a top 100, who would actually have Wally higher at this point? Right. Because I know it was initially on your 2013 top 100. Yeah, I think I had it at number 30 or so of the 100. Gotcha, yeah. But here we are to the big... Number one. The big grand prize. So, Dan, what's your number one? So, my number one... So, I have three movies in the world that I can't decide between the three of them which one is really my favorite movie anymore. I used to have this one distinctly at number three between the three, but after my most recent watch, I really felt it just pull up neck and neck with the other two. So, I'm saying this is a candidate for my favorite movie ever, Brian. This is Toy Story 3 from 2010. I I think this movie, it's hard to imagine how it could have gone, how it could have taken what Toy Story 1 built and Toy Story 2 expanded and really just brought it to its ultimate conclusion. I hear a lot of people say, well, the first two thirds aren't that good, but the ending is. And I do think the ending is absolutely phenomenal. It's maybe my favorite movie ending ever. I mean, just every phase. We have so much religious overtones here. We have like the end of the earth and the end of life. We have oblivion and then we have rebirth. And then just for the hell of it, we end with a dance party because why not to a flamenco version of you got a friend in me. And it makes me so emotional, but like just captures the feeling of aging and saying goodbye to your youth in a way that no other piece of media ever has for me. Nothing has ever spoke to me in the same way of feeling like I'm watching exactly the the emotions that I felt about childhood and leaving them behind just crystallized into this thrilling and visually rapturous story. Uh, but back to the first two thirds, I think they hold up really well. I mean, I wouldn't put them quite as high as the ending, but I think they do some really awesome stuff with like genre pastiche, which has always been a part of Toy Story. There's always been like references and, and genre stuff going on in the, the Toy Story movies and really kind of teasing out the idea of how it's not always greener on the other side and how it's hard to figure out what's next in life and how, you know, it's hard to feel like you're being replaced and, and how it's easy to turn that feeling into something dark and, and something apparently nice about like this this new life, but also see it in kind of a dark way, too. And just so, so much complex st stuff going on with this movie. Uh, very funny, very entertaining. I love it so much. I need to pace myself from viewing it so that I don't lose the emotional impact of it because I'm always just tempted to just put it on. Uh, I think it's best if you watch the first two to really get the full kick of it. That's my, my number one Pixar movie, easy. Toy Story 3, 2010. Okay, so for my number one, I've kind of got a dodge. And that's because I didn't want to leave Inside Out off the list. I also didn't want our list to end up being like exactly the same. And so what I'm going to say is at number one, I have Toy Story 2 or 3. So some insight into that is my, my own personal tastes and predilections, says Toy Story 2. Uh, it's got a lot of that same Cold War stuff that informs Incredibles. 
because we get the backstory about Woody being the star of a 1950s TV show. He's basically Howdy Doody, which is something that we didn't know before. And then it uses that to mirror the conflict in the first one where he was supplanted by the cool action figure but it talks about like the shift in pop culture between the 50s obsession with westerns to the like late 50s into the 60s obsession with space exploration it's like wow that's perfect great way to expand the world i like that the villain has changed from in toy story one you've got the guy who destroys and tortures toys to a guy who preserves toys indefinitely. He's this obsessed man-child collector. And that that can also be bad. That that's also a disconnect from the ideal existence of a toy. I really love all that stuff. And you have it without it being so maudlin. Like, you have the sad scene in the, the Jesse number where she sings about that eventually her owner grew up and forgot about her. But that's not the whole movie. Uh, so so that's why I love Toy Story 2. But I can't deny that Toy Story 3 is a masterpiece. It's expertly made. It's just a, a symphony masterwork. But it makes me feel so sad. <laughs> it just makes me feel sad beginning, middle, and end. So I don't know where to put it. I, I think if I were being honest, maybe I put Toy Story 2 still at 1, just my, my own personal vanity, and, and maybe Toy Story 3 at, at 3. But that kicks Inside Out off the list, and I love Inside Out. So th 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 these are my sentiments. I think the Toy Story sequels are, like, unquestionably the best stuff they've done. Toy Story 4 excluded. I, I just don't think that one needed to be made. It's still a good movie, but it's not top five. I don't know if it's top ten. But Toy Story 2 and 3. That's that's peak Pixar for me. Great call. A little bit of a cheat on the number one, but I respect the sentiment. I definitely agree. For for the record, I have Toy Story 2 at number seven. Okay. So that is one of my my seven tour de goods. I have it as a slightly lesser tour de good. I, for me, the chase scene at the end at the airport feels a little emotionally detached from the rest of the movie. And that's my kind of biggest argument against it. I also, the Toy Story movies never quite got their world building fully in line. And it never quite sat right with me that they could like screw up traffic. It's like to me, toys operate in the shadows. And if they're like like making those traffic accidents, I don't know why that always bugged me so much, but it did. But that said, I still have it at a tour day good. I still think it's a masterpiece as well. And um yeah. Four has a lot of stuff like that. Oh yeah, yeah. I have Toy Story Four at number fifteen on my, my okay. list. And I bumped it around with Incredibles two at fourteen and fifteen, like two unnecessary sequels that don't quite justify their existence, but also bring really interesting and entertaining stuff to the table. They're like less of the sum of their parts, but I like a lot of their parts. But yeah, I have a, out of the ones that, that you mentioned in your top five, I have Inside Out at number eight. So I have it as a high seven. I want to do a deep dive on Pete Doctor at some point, because I personally have done a deep dive on Pete Doctor's films and have a grand unifying theory of Pete Doctor that is mostly positive, but has some downfalls. And I think Inside Out has some of those same things. One thing that really bothered me, it's interesting to me, you said you would like to see more of the Inside Out world. But one thing I really did not like about Inside Out is that when we see everyone's head, they kind of all have the same emotions. 
which to me seemed kind of boring. Like, I feel like people's heads should be different. I liked that this was just specifically whatever her name is. What's Riley? That it was Riley's head specifically. But I, I also agree that one is really great, too. Well, yeah, I don't want to talk anybody's ears off. I, I, I think they arrived at that arrangement, that assortment of five emotions based on some psychologist's work. That, like, those are the five emotions that everybody's driven by. So it didn't bother me that uh, that's what we've got as the crew in everyone's head. But what I think is kind of interesting, odd, is that Riley is the only person whose emotions all look different. Like, everybody else, their emotions are, like, they have the person's face, and they're just the different colors to tell us which one they are. Whereas Riley, they're all very distinctive looking. And, I mean, that's because that's those are the characters we're following, so they need to stand out. But it seemed like everybody's should have different looks. Right, yeah. So, my near miss that I had a hard time choosing between this and The Incredibles was Ratatouille. So that's what I had at number six, my other tour de good. Did, was there any number six that was hard for you to leave off beyond your... your Toy Story 2 and 3 fudge at number one. Yeah, no, that's my that's my fudge. That would have been that would have taken us to six. Gotcha. Uh, I, I don't immediately know what the next one is that would come along. I, I got to look, but there's definitely some good ones out there. Right. I, I think I would probably put uh, Monsters, Inc. as the next one after after those. Yeah, I have Monsters, Inc. neck and neck with Inside Out for for number eight, and number nine. I'm right up there with you too. And then up, not not too far behind as well. Up, I really love the opening ten minutes. Uh-huh. And then so much weird stuff happens. Yeah. Like there's just so many crazy outlandish things in up that it it drags it down some for me. It clicked a little more this time around for me. Like I agree, like it does the weird stuff where like, oh, now there's a whole dog society in the woods. Yeah, the talking the talking dogs really impacts the rating for me. It did click a little more for me this time that I watched it than last time. Uh, I watched it like a month or so ago. But yeah, no, uh, lots of good stuff all around. So Pixar, man, I could talk Pixar all day. Great stuff. Maybe we'll return to the topic in time. Yeah. All right, Brian, this was fun. I think uh, g- a good experiment. We can reflect on the format a little bit and figure out what if we ever do one again, if it looks the same way, one thing I, I want more of a chance to react to the other's thoughts, but also like if I had said this or that, then you would have known that I either didn't have it coming or did have it coming. So I don't know exactly what the right balance is, but we can reflect upon it a little bit. And if we do another one of these, we can uh, maybe experiment a little more. So, but in the meantime, Brian, what do we have for, for next week? All right. So in this episode we covered a film about puberty as represented by a merman transformation and so i have picked another movie about the same topic another one from disney it is the 1999 decom disney channel original movie the 13th year this is one i've had cooking for a while it might have been the very first decom i ever saw and uh i, n- I never forgot it I've never heard of this one, yeah. I love a good cryptid movie, so <laughs> that's what we've got on deck for the next one. I, I think it'll be a good follow-up to Luca. We'll have some similar things to talk about. 
And uh, I've wanted to toss this one on, haven't come across the appropriate moment. And then when you said Luca, I thought this is going to work. So uh, that's what's up next, listeners. Counter programming. Yeah, cool. Right, right. All right. Well, I, I'll, I'm looking forward to seeing it. And, and thank you, Brian. So thanks, everybody. Yeah, always. And thanks, listeners. Hope you join us again. Thank you.